everybody. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I know we're all sick of hearing about COVID-19 on the news from friends, God forbid, getting a positive diagnosis or being hospitalized, or even worse, knowing someone who has passed from COVID. But some interesting information has come to light from all places and insurance database. And yes, insurance companies are doing work that help people. They essentially looked at data from 500,000 patients in their database and sorted out who had COVID, who died from COVID, and what comorbidities they had. These comorbidities were things like lung cancer, blood cancer, Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, spinal cord injury, and liver disease. They also looked at comorbidities like developmental disorders and intellectual disabilities. These included things like Down syndrome and other chromosomal disorders and congenital conditions like microcephaly, which is a very, very small head. Developmental disorders were defined as including those of speech and language, as well as central auditory processing disorders, some of which may be caused by an underlying condition like cerebral palsy. I want to mention here that autism specifically as its own diagnosis was not included. I'm not sure if those with intellectual disability and autism were included or just intellectual disability without autism were included. However, many people with autism were not included. So what I'm about to say may or may not apply to ASD specifically, but certainly to people who have other disorders in speech and language, cerebral palsy, and intellectual disability. The study found that people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disorders were three times more likely to die if they have a COVID-19 diagnosis. It didn't say anything about being more susceptible to it or transmittal of it or getting it more often, just dying from it. Overall, the death rate from COVID in this particular study was 0.6%. I will say I've seen studies that have the death rate as high as 2.5%. Now, these findings were not reviewed by a journal and they did not undergo scrutiny. I think that if I had reviewed them, I would have asked why autism was not included. I also had a lot of questions about reading the report and actually considered waiting to share the results with you because I believe they could be answered by this database. However, now it seems like we're close to a vaccine and now we're actually thinking about how the vaccine should be distributed and who should get it first. Clearly, people with developmental and intellectual disabilities, as those with cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and other comorbidities who also showed an increased likelihood of dying from COVID, should get the vaccine first. So why are they more likely to die from COVID? We're still not sure. The population is uniquely vulnerable for several reasons. Many live in group homes or receive care from aides, therapists, or teachers who must maintain close physical proximity in order to assist them. Between 16% and 20% of people in this study lived in congregate settings, compared to only 6% of seniors overall. However, that should be reflected in an infection rate, not just a death rate, and that infection rate was not provided. Now, many people with developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities are medically frail to begin with, and that includes those with high rates of underlying health conditions, like respiratory problems. That makes them more susceptible to pneumonia, increasing the risk for severe illness if they get infected. It's important to note that their autism was excluded, again, and I don't know why. It is a developmental disorder, and I'm still confused about this. The New York Times specifically asked them about autism, and they said autism was not included. But 
if the analysis did include other developmental disorders and intellectual disabilities, and because people with autism, developmental disorders, and intellectual disabilities also need help from aides, therapists, and teachers, and are thought to be at a higher susceptibility because of those people working in close proximity, it's clear to me that aides, therapists, teachers, and autism families should be among the first to receive the vaccine. You may or may not know this, but there is a lot of discussion about who should get the vaccine first. This provides valuable evidence that autism families should be on that list. Now, speaking of those with intellectual disabilities, I know a few podcasts have been dedicated to the differences between those of ASD with and without intellectual disability. These podcasts specifically, I should say. It's worth again noting that those with intellectual disabilities may be suffering in ways that we don't even recognize or to the same extent as those who can express themselves do. One example is anxiety. The rate of anxiety in people with ASD has been reported to be anywhere between 40 and 80 percent, and that was before COVID. Test the rate of anxiety in families with autism now. It's like 100 percent. People are studying this, and trust me, it's going to be that high. Most measures of anxiety are self or parent report. So what if a person cannot fill out a parent report? And what if the usual signs are not obvious due to physical or cognitive limitations? What if they're unable to express their anxiety? In typical kids and ASD kids, signs of autism also change over time, presenting an externalizing behavior like aggression and outbursts in kids, and then withdrawal and avoidance in adolescents. However, kids and children with autism certainly have additional social avoidance and anxieties linked to sensory sensitivities. While there is a measure of anxiety in kids with ASD, those with intellectual disability may be a bit trickier. Where is the science and what is needed? A systematic review and meta-analysis would help in this question. And thankfully, a group in the UK did this systematic review and meta-analysis. Now, a systematic review includes quality, whether the sample was described well, whether valid measures were used, how the diagnoses were confirmed, and how IQ was ascertained and how anxiety was measured. The good news is this analysis was done and most of the papers were pretty good quality. Not all of them, but on average, they were actually pretty good. In all, there were almost 50 papers included with 18,000 participants across them. The bad news is, is that people with autism with higher IQs showed higher levels of anxiety than those with lower IQs. This was only true if the whole spectrum of IQ was included. If you only looked at those who did not have a cognitive disability or had a high or normal range IQ, there was no association, probably because the sample size were lower and you needed to see much bigger differences to be significant. But let's assume this is true. More cognitively abled people with ASD have higher levels of anxiety than those with lower IQ. Why would this be? Some of the authors of the individual studies say that higher cognitive abilities allow for greater abstract thinking and planning, which actually may lead to greater preemptive worries and anxiety. They may be capable of higher order functions like worries or self-efficacy, Higher IQ may also allow for greater exposure to different environmental and social situations, which could be more anxiety-provoking. I'm not convinced, and either of the authors, by the way, that people with low IQ actually have lower levels of anxiety, as the data suggests. 
It could be that measurements need to be improved, which is true no matter what you're measuring in ASD. So that's a highly plausible explanation. How do you measure anxiety in a person that has no verbal ability and low cognitive ability? This group of people have an array of medical conditions like gastrointestinal problems, seizures, sleep, and self-injury, and cannot verbalize their worries like other people can. Behavioral signals like nonverbal communication other and other expressions could signal anxiety or it could signal a number of other things, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So while the data now show that people with high IQ have higher anxiety, I don't think it really tells the whole story. I just mentioned another issue in people with autism, with and without comorbid intellectual disability, and that's gastrointestinal problems and self-injurious behavior. They exist in those with high and low cognitive ability, but they seem to occur more in those with low cognitive ability or low IQ. When I talk about self-injury, I'm not talking about stimming or hand flapping or shuffling or rocking. Those are not self-injurious. I'm talking about head banging, finger and lip biting, and other actions which end in physical harm. Rocking is not harmful. Flapping is not harmful. Biting your fingers off, that's harmful. Because there's so much variability in self-injury and restrictive and repetitive behaviors in populations, researchers focused on those with a known genetic disorder. On average, those with a known genetic mutation are more likely to have self-injury and to have intellectual disability. In fact, 30% of the people in the study I'm going to describe had a self-injury that was considered more severe than just mild. And then the study I'm going to talk about, self-injury was not associated with low IQ or lower adaptive behavior. So the results I'm going to talk about may describe to a broader range of people than those with just rare genetic disorders. So don't come at me if your family member does not have a known genetic mutation, but does have self-injury or gastrointestinal pain, and you think it does apply to you. In a group of about 100 people, half were male and half were female, that's a change, Abdominal pain was associated with severe self-injury. It was not linked to communication skills or intellectual ability, indicating that self-injury is not necessarily a way of expressing abdominal pain. It seems as though it's the pain itself being manifested, not a need to communicate the pain in a way that a caregiver would pay attention to. And because communication ability did not affect the relationship between GI issues and self-injury, it could apply to those with expressive language as well. In other words, these findings could be more generalizable to just those with rare genetic disorders. Now, pain management is tricky in people with autism. There have been studies that show differences in pain thresholds or the point at which someone says they experience pain. Pain may be unrecognized in people with ASD and better instruments to detect pain thresholds, even if it's not gastrointestinal pain, should be used. The study does not determine that the only cause of self-injury is abdominal pain. It's just one source. So obviously GI function should be examined if self-injury is present, but we also need more research on what causes self-injury in addition to pain. The bottom line is we need more measures. We need more measures of anxiety, pain, and also susceptibility to COVID infections that we have. Good news on the COVID front though, it does seem like a vaccine is on the way. If you want to learn more than you have wanted to about the science behind these vaccines and the promise of these vaccines, our board member Paul Offit will be on a Children's Hospital of Philadelphia webinar December 9th at noon Eastern to discuss. Details are on the podcast summary. Thank you so much for listening this week. 
I hope you all have an amazing holiday Thanksgiving weekend if you're in the United States and an amazing week anyway, even if you don't live in the U.S.